trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is here to encourage people to stand for what they believe in most deeply, to strengthen the hearts of those who have chosen to make that stand, and to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible about the world around you. Because, man, there is a lot of misinformation circulating right now. And sorting out facts from fiction, let's just say that it takes some real effort. And I'm here to assist you in your efforts to see things clearly and to stand on your own feet and be the person you were born to be. My program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, <clears throat> HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourIncome.com. Got a lot of stuff to talk about today here. I wanted to start with uh, an essay that I found from Robert E. Wright, published on the American Institute for Economic Research's website. And in this essay, he addresses one of the biggest reasons why the public's faith in political institutions is fading fast. And that's because politicians are so well-practiced in avoiding accountability. And it's not just, you know, the weasel words that they use or the chameleon-like characteristics they take on, you know, whenever elections roll around. We've seen that, right? Right, Senator Romney? We've seen that kind of thing. Um, sorry. But uh, it's, it's also in the way that they craft their legislation, the way things are all lumped into a particular omnibus bill. And, well, let's just throw this all in there and then we'll pass it and then we'll figure out what's in it. And we're talking bills with thousands of pages of you know, legal jargon and minutia that uh, nonetheless becomes binding legislation once it's passed by Congress. So transparency is essential if you want to live and thrive in a free society. And Robert E. Wright talks about this in, in great detail. He says, have you noticed that many Democrats today are not particularly democratic? Oh, they want everyone and then some to vote. But that's where their conception of democracy seems to end. President Biden wants to tamp down on conspiracy theories, but this more by surveilling the public than by making the government transparent and accountable. Now, he says the banner of one of the party's leading newspapers, the Washington Post, has asserted that since 2017, democracy dies in darkness. But another of its rags, the New York Times, delayed a story about the Kenosha riots thought troublesome for Democratic Party candidates until after the 2020 election. Huh, what a coincidence. He says, when are they going to write, or what are they going to write, when secessionist movements pick up even more momentum? Now, that's a fair question. Because it's, it's happening. According to a 2018 Rasmussen study, almost two in five Democrats thought civil war was likely within the next five years. In other words, by 2023. Now, that was partly due to the hatred and distrust of then-President Donald Trump. But it was also an indication that Democrats are more likely to try to use force to keep a disintegrating nation together. 
Their paternalistic view of the world compels them to reject federalism in favor of centralized power. You'll own nothing and accept novel medical treatments and like it, or else. He says the key to preventing further disintegration of our governance is access to information, not voting, per se. Now, some people proudly don, I voted, stickers and buttons, and that's swell, but why did those folks vote as they did? Robert E. Wright asks, how can Americans discern who to vote for if they don't know who made which decisions, when they made them, and on what basis? Such information has become extremely difficult to obtain without the help of costly lawsuits, like the one in Missouri that recently revealed lawmakers had unconstitutionally ceded power to unelected government administrators. Similarly, the Fifth Circuit Federal Court reviewing the Biden-OSHA workplace COVID vaccination mandate could not be canceled or shouted down, so it easily demolished all the pretexts for the mandate. If the mandated medical treatment, which can be called a vaccine only because of a change in the CDC's definition of that term, is effective, then the only people at risk are the unvaccinated. If it's ineffective, then on what basis can it be mandated? If an emergency truly exists, why wasn't the mandate put in place earlier, and why did it not include small companies? How dangerous is COVID-19 for working people anyway? His point is OSHA could not answer such questions, revealing the vacuity of the mandate. Now, even after the court stayed implementation, however, Biden urged companies to comply anyway. (laughs) Say what? That's not how the rule of law works. And again, it seems that Americans all need to contact a judge or governor to protect themselves from charges of misprision of felony if not misprision of treason. So does the Biden administration have pertinent information that it's not disclosing, or is it covering something up? Well, we may never know, at least those of us in middle age or older, as the FDA wants 55 years to process Freedom of Information Act requests related to its COVID policies. Now, he points out, that's not a typo. Nobody involved in this colossal COVID cluster wants to take the blame And the only way to protect themselves from the flood of Freedom of Information Act requests that were predicted last year is to stall, hem and haw, and obfuscate, and then stall some more. So Robert E. Wright says, How can Americans allow politicians to spend their money with almost no accountability or transparency? Details of the contracts between the government and major COVID vaccine, in quotation marks, manufacturers, unless leaked earlier will be unavailable for at least five years. By the way, Canadians and other alleged Democrats face similar restrictions. According to private sector auditors, the Pentagon cannot account for trillions of dollars. Americans will never know the details of that fraud because auditors could not finish their work due to the government's many bookkeeping deficiencies, irregularities, and errors. I should probably point out here, He has links. He supplies links to every single thing he's talking about here. So this is not just, uh, you know, this is not just Robert E. Wright just opining, you know, and free form uh, or freestyling, you know, some some uh, stream of consciousness thoughts on the passing scene. Similarly, he says manipulation of the Freedom of Information request system stymies the investigation of past government mistakes at a wide range of bureaucracies including the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has long been infamous for its arbitrary decision-making processes. 
So he says, with help from another business historian, I was able to use the Freedom of Information Act to obtain the information necessary to expose the SEC's role in creating the conditions at the credit rating agencies that made virtually inevitable the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. And he says, I can't be certain that we found everything relevant to the SEC's flawed decision-making process. The Freedom of Information Act system was so slow and onerous that it appeared deliberately designed to dissuade researchers from investigating the SEC's past. Nevertheless, he says, we wanted to look, we wanted next to look at the changes in the SEC's so-called town hall rule regarding stockholders' right to use management proxy materials to submit proposals to fellow stockholders. After reviewing the extant uh, secondary literature, which is thin and repetitive, because it's based solely on the few publicly available sources, we decided to press on with an in-depth analysis. This time, though, he says our fee waiver request was denied on nonsense grounds, and our information request was subjected to repeated demands for more specific information. Now, he says the demand for more specific information, though, presented us with a catch-22 or a chicken-and-the-egg problem. The SEC does not provide researchers with a finding aid, a document routinely created by archival staff to guide researchers to potentially relevant documents. He actually links to an example. But without a finding aid, he says researchers like me have no idea whether the documents they would like to see even exist, much less the details about them that the SEC's Freedom of Information Act requests officers purport that they need to see. See? The Freedom of Information Act reveals the government at its most inefficient or systematically corrupt. Now, there's more to this article, but the bottom line is, look, if complete and instantaneous disclosure proves impossible politically, the United States should return to a government with power so limited that it should not constantly need to be watched or audited or dreaded. I think he has a point here. The more that politicians can do in the dark or the more that they can do to try to shelter themselves from any real accountability, whether that's to the voters, whether that's to one another or the various regulatory agencies, the less likely they are to work in our interest. And that's what they're supposed to do in the first place, right? We didn't uh, we didn't elect them so that they could go create their own little personal fiefdoms and and, you know, do whatever they darn well please at the expense of the productive members of society. But that sure looks like what's happening, doesn't it? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's been a while since I've given a shout-out to my friend Carl of the C-Train. Carl is one of my uh, seven faithful listeners. I just go with that number because uh, seven's a nice number, and I don't like to assume that, uh, you know, I've got uh, the world in the palm of my hand here. But um, one of the reasons I bring up my friend Carl is uh, I, I just saw this article, How Hallmark Channel Saved Christmas. And since I know that uh, Carl and his lovely wife, Yvette, have been extras in a couple of uh, different uh, different movies filmed for the Hallmark Channel, I thought, okay, i got to check this out. This is an article by Martin Cothran. Pick this up off of intellectualtakeout.org. Now, 
I'm going to admit, I'm not the kind of guy who is likely to sit down and switch on the Hallmark Channel and, you know, just uh, grab a cup of tea and a blanket and <laughs> sit there in my pajamas and watch. No, I'm, I'm probably looking for something with car chases, explosions, and some gunplay, but hey, this is a really great article, though. <clears throat> Martin Cothran says, while conservative media have spent the last few holiday seasons bemoaning the war on Christmas, one television network is actually doing something about it. Using the cultural weapons of heartwarming settings, wholesome plot lines, and endearing characters, the Hallmark Channel has spent the last decade vanquishing the enemies of Christmas, who now lie prostrate on the field. But this cultural onslaught of wholesomeness has not come as welcome news to everyone. Hallmark movies proclaim Salon Magazine's ill-tempered Amanda Marcotte constitute the platonic ideal of fascist propaganda. Dang! If only we'd known, right? The movies, she said, work to enforce very narrow, white, heteronormative, sexist provincial ideas of what constitutes normal. (laughs) Martin Cothran says, well, I guess I'll mark her off my holiday party list. He says, most criticism of Hallmark Christmas movies take a slightly less fanatic approach. Their settings, the criticism goes, are unrealistic, their plots predictable, and their characters insufferably clean cut. Now, these may sound like bad things to some, but they're precisely the reason that people like these movies. In the case of Hallmark Christmas movies, their weaknesses are precisely their strengths. The Hallmark Channel is number one in households and total viewers in some primetime slots. During November and December, 85 million viewers, mostly women, watch at least one Hallmark Christmas movie. So, it's true, many of the plots do indeed employ a familiar formula, but it's a formula people are naturally attracted to. In fact, all good plots are formulas. That's what a plot is. It's a literary formula. Shakespeare used literary formulas, so does every good writer. In fact, author John Steinbeck said in East of Eden, there is only one possible plot line, as did writer Joseph Campbell, who called the plot line a monomyth, which sets a hero on an adventure who then has a crisis and eventually is transformed. So the question isn't whether a plot operates on a formula, but whether it operates on a good formula. The central aspect of any story is that the conflict the tension in the story that results from some evil threatening some good. Now, the best kind of story is one in which a real danger is averted, and the most calamitous tragedy that can be visited upon any human, the one that will bring you to your knees, is when the person you love is taken from you and there's no way to get him or her back. Now, that can happen through death, of course, but the popularity of the typical Hallmark Christmas movie lies in the tension that results from the possible failure of love, death of another kind, one possibly worse than the real one. So, with regard to the complaint of unrealistic settings, there is something of an irony in the fact that in a media age dominated by superheroes and zombies, anyone would be indicting Christmas movies for a lack of realism. Since when do we demand realism in Christmas movies? Furthermore, says Martin Cothran, I'm unclear as to what the problem is with wholesome characters. Is simply portraying a good person an artistic problem? We know that making those good characters compelling is sometimes difficult. In fact, some writers have been criticized for making bad characters rather than good ones too compelling. 
as was the case with Milton's characterization of Satan in Paradise Lost. Such a charge has also been leveled at Disney, but he says if people are in fact compelled by a good character, then what's the problem? Is it that good characters are unrealistic, or are there really no good people out there? Those who think this just need to get out more. And he says, why do I get the idea that the killjoys who criticize Hallmark movies would cease their denunciations the second the studio started letting their characters hop into bed with each other? There's a cliche that they have no problem with. So he says, I'm trying to think of the last time I heard an evil character in a story being criticized for being evil. Why is it that good is thought of as needing an apology, but evil seldom does? Well, it says a lot about the current state of our culture that there are so many people triggered by wholesomeness. Martin Cothran says, I remember someone telling me years ago that the best thing we could do for young people is screen some of the great romance movies of the golden age of Hollywood for them. And he says, I think that's a good idea. We live in an age where people mistake sex for romance, largely because they know too much about sex and hardly anything about romance or love. So it isn't that Hallmark movies portray romance particularly well. Some do, some don't. It's that they do it at all. The rest of the movie can be a joke, but if it depicts one real romance convincingly, people will watch it. Love is the Hallmark Channel's monomyth, and they've got that market cornered. So there you go. I didn't think I would start out the day praising the Hallmark Channel and saying, hey, maybe there's something here that's, that's worth your while. Not because I think they do bad movies, but just I, typically I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the guy who wants to sit down and watch the chick flicks. Sorry. I'm way too alpha for that, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just, I just don't, uh, I don't get drawn to that as much as, you know, comedies or action or things like that. I do find it an interesting point, and I agree with Martin Cothran. There is kind of a stigma about being wholesome, and this isn't something new. In fact, I look back on when I was in high school, and there was a very real fear, at least I lived with a real fear, and I know that I had friends who lived with this too, of being seen as too good, as in goody-two-shoes kind of good. In fact, I think about the kids who I went to high school with who were really wholesome individuals. These are the ones who didn't use swear words, they didn't party, they didn't, you know, fool around. They were... They were straight arrows, and they were kind of outcasts in some ways. They, they were somewhat marginalized. And, you know, I'm, granted, we're talking high school culture, so, you know, you think about what was popular versus what wasn't. But you paid a price if you were seen as good. And there were a lot of us, myself included, who was like, you know, I don't want to be a bad person, but I don't want to be seen as too good. If I'm seen as too good, that's going to totally destroy my image, man. I'll have no street cred or whatever it was that we were thinking, you know. I'm not going to be acceptable to the people that need to accept me. Now, it's funny how all that stuff goes out the window as you leave high school. You get out into the real world and realize, wow, that was that was really artificial. <laughs> but, uh, but it's real to, to the people who are going through it. And the funny thing about it is... Those kids who uh, sometimes were mistreated because they were so good and so wholesome actually never treated other people poorly. In fact, I look at them and I think, wow, they were some of the best examples of the kind of person that I'm trying to become 
They just got a real good head start on it. So don't be afraid of being seen as too good. Understand, we all have flaws. Even the goody two-shoes have flaws. But maybe it's, uh, maybe it's time to start looking with a, with a little less of a jaundiced eye at uh, those things which are, uh, do I dare say, wholesome in nature. You know, even, even the stuff that, uh, that Hollywood is putting out there that has kind of a wholesome flavor. I know, it's not as edgy, right? It's not as, it's not as crazy as giving Satan a lap dance, but hey, maybe there's something of substance here that we've been overlooking. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, I want to thank you for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I have no idea on a daily basis how many people listen to this program. But I suspect that the ones who do listen are people who feel called at some level to stand up for what they believe is right, or at least what they believe matters. And it's not just a matter of, well, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to go out and burn my neighborhood down to show everybody how serious I am about, uh, you know, about making changes. I'm talking about people who stand for the right things and do it in ways that respect the rights of other people to believe and to to think and to exercise their conscience as they see fit. In other words, it's not about forcing other people to come around to your point of view. It's about inspiring them rather than requiring them to think this way. Now, maybe I'm just an optimist, but I, I think it works. I think that uh, any time I've ever made a meaningful shift in my perception of the world, it was always, without exception, as a result of someone who had introduced me to new truth, but did so in a way that allowed me to come to that truth at my own pace, rather than just simply beating me into submission and saying, there, you can thank me later, you know, when you've changed your mind. So I had a conversation with a good friend last night, and something he pointed out to me really has stuck in my head. He says, you know, as, as he and his wife were driving around, he says, I, I, I just get the sense that, that there's so many ticked off drivers out there. And frankly, I'm doing less driving these days, you know, doing my part to save the planet. No, actually, I just I work from home, so I don't uh, I don't uh, I don't get out on the road as much. But I do see drivers that are pretty tightly wound. And uh, why are people seething just beneath beneath the surface? My friend said, look, I think it's an indicator of some deep-seated anger that, uh, well, it's, it's, the anger's real. You're just seeing it come out in people's driving, and you're seeing it come out in other ways, too. But we have had to deal with a lot of pressure and stress, particularly over the last couple of years, but it still kind of raises this question. Why are we so angry? I have an article here from Peter W. Wood. This is from AmericanGreatness.com or AmGreatness.com. One angry nation, two wildly divergent explanations. He's actually reviewing a, a book called Wildland, The Making of America's Fury by uh, Evan Osnos. 
And Peter Wood says, we Americans have become an angry bunch. He says, on that, Evan Osnos and I agree. Osnos is a staff writer for The New Yorker, whose new book, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, surveys some some of the same territory as my new book, Wrath, America Enraged. But on why we are angry and what it all means, he says, Osnos and I diverge. Osnos sees in contemporary America, quote, the failure of that mythology, end quote, that bound us together in moral commitment, including the rule of law, the force of truth, and the right to pursue a better life. Whereas Peter Wood says, I see in contemporary America not a failure of myth, but a change in character in which an older culture of self-restraint has given way to forceful expression. Now, he says, Osnos, whose other works include a flattering campaign biography of Joe Biden, blames ordinary Americans for indulging in a prolonged temper tantrum that has no real justification. Good heavens, could we dial the calendar back to 2016 and just let uh, Mr. Osnos see, see that for just a moment? Speaking of prolonged temper tantrums, nevertheless, Peter Wood says, my view to the contrary is that ordinary Americans are responding to the emergence of a ruling class whose contempt for them and for American civilization is nearly comprehensive. It's not that faith in the rule of law, the force of truth, and the right to pursue a better life has faltered. It's that faithful Americans now face the lawless use of state power, a duplicitous media, and rent-seeking by global elites. He says, Osnos's book has woven together a vivid tales of individuals in Greenwich, Connecticut, Osmos's hometown, Clarksburg, West Virginia, where he once worked for the local newspaper, and Chicago. He injects into almost all these stories his own disdain for the kinds of people who supported the Tea Party and eventually Donald Trump. The historical arc of Wildland is from the shock of 9-11 to the insurrection of January 6th. He pauses at one point mid-book to observe, quote, Trump, the Tea Party, the NRA, they all made use of that rising unease of Americans who could not quite put a name to the anxieties they felt about the disordering of their world, about the puncturing of American invincibility, the browning of America, the vanishing of jobs to automation, the stagnation of their incomes, the language of force gained ground. Sarah Palin, in her appearances at Tea Party rallies and online, made frequent use of metaphors from the Revolutionary War and the world of guns. Don't retreat, reload, she liked to say. End quote. Now, Peter Wood says this wraps together in one noose many of the demons haunting Osnos's America. Those people who can't quite put a name on their anxieties are the easily manipulated dupes of demagogues like Palin and Trump. Why are so many Americans furious? Well, Osnos says it's because they're afraid. And the answer is a familiar theme on the American left, which would like to psychologize away the dissatisfactions of the tens of millions of Americans who comprise the angry right. As Osnos puts it, those already stewing in economic or racial resentment were not in possession of an ideology, but had a rootlessness of the mind, a loss of purpose, inspiration, and community. Somehow missing in his 400-page-plus account are the words that seared in the memories of a great many Americans when in 2016 Hillary pronounced half the supporters of Donald Trump to be a basket of deplorables, characterized by their racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic views. And before that, in 2008, when Obama had this to say about working-class voters in old industrial towns, they get bitter, They cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-trade sentiment as a way to explain their frustrations. 
So deplorables and bitter clingers are touchstones for almost every working-class Trump supporter I've ever talked with, says Peter Wood. And he says, it seems odd that Osnos never mentions those words. Despite quoting copiously from Hillary and Obama, and despite his interviewing a fair number of working-class Trump voters, was he unable to hear how the contempt of these national figures reverberated in the lives of the people they dismissed? Hearing it would cast doubt on the idea that the Tea Party and the populist movement that followed it were rooted in fear. The roots of that movement were a righteous fury, not baffled distress or unfocused anxiety. People understood perfectly well that a new governing class had arisen determined to overturn democratic norms and our self-governing republic and to replace them with domination by self-serving experts and a globalized elite. Now, the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution still play a large role in the lives of millions of Americans, but not so much in the lives of progressives, who since the time of Woodrow Wilson have regarded the nation's founding documents and the principles they embody as obstacles to overcome on their way to a more efficient and just polity. Wildland is a book aimed at reassuring the supporters of the new regime that the fury of their fellow Americans is an aberration. It was set in motion by the shock of 9-11 and exploited by leaders who translated the fears of ordinary Americans into a xenophobic rage. Osnos recalls in his opening pages how when he worked on the newspaper in Clarksburg, he noticed how fear was reaching into our political life and how soon enough vandals drew the picture of a lynching and the name Jamal on a West Virginia mosque. But by the end of the book, Osnos is expressing his frustration that Trump supporters refused to abandon him even after the January 6th insurrection. Here's a quote from the book. The more I asked, the more people dug in. The truth was, I knew that any real change, if it was to happen, would start in private. Now, he also says the agonies of 2020 had not snapped Americans out of their divisions. The rifts were too wide and the combatants too entrenched for any easy reconciliation. But the Trump presidency and the COVID pandemic had forced Americans to reckon more explicitly than at any moment in years with the costs of inequity, seclusion and disengagement, end quote. So Osnes's counsel is that while it will take time, Americans will outgrow their <clears throat> infatuation with Trump and populism and will settle down to enjoy the normalcy of American life. Now, the normalcy he has in mind, of course, is the dispensation of permanent progressive government. Now, Peter Wood says, Wrath, America Enraged, offers no such reassurances. He says, for one thing, I take what Osnos calls America's fury as the culmination of a much longer and deeper set of developments. Looking back over the whole sweep of American history, and we can find lots of eruptions of civic discontent and public anger, the American Revolution and Civil War are the preeminent examples. But he says, hardly a year has gone by in our history without notable disruptions infused with anger. People are always angry, and politics is a prime medium for anger. i got to tap the brakes here because we are fast approaching our commercial break. We'll come back to this article from Peter W. Wood. It is also linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They have been such a remarkable sponsor and a long-term sponsor here on this show. And and I want you to know, if you are anywhere within the state of Utah and you have need of, uh, whether it's a VA loan or a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you, especially when time is of the essence, which... Let's face it, it's a very competitive real estate market. You find the home of your dreams. Your financing's got to be squared away right now. You can call 435-703-4522 to talk to Heather. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and their offices are located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. There's also a link to her email in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. So I'm sharing this article here from Peter W. Woods. One angry nation, two wildly divergent explanations. And as we were hitting the, the break, I, I mentioned that he, he points out how people are always angry and politics is a prime medium for anger. But he says anger isn't necessarily the same in every circumstance. For much of American history, we can discern exceptionally strong cultural constraints on how and when anger could be displayed. Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton fought a duel. They didn't step out in front of France's tavern to throw haymakers at each other. George Washington himself was known to have a volcanic temper and was all the more respected for his success in reining it in. Parents labored hard to teach their children emotional self-control. The very word tantrum was an 18th century coinage that caught on in America in the early 1800s as a way of expressing disapproval of childish outbursts. Louisa May Alcott's Little Women presents Joe's mother telling her, You think your temper is the worst of the world, but mine used to be just like it. I've been trying to cure it for 40 years and have only succeeded in controlling it. I am angry every day of my life. Now, Peter Wood says, Americans of generations past knew all about anger. But our heroes were like the characters portrayed by Gary Cooper, who mastered it rather than letting it master them. Things began to change in the 1950s when American elites cottoned to Freudian ideas among the lines that repressing anger would come back at you as neurosis and French French existentialist ideas that expressing rage was the key to a more authentic life. He says, in my writings on the subject, my books, A Bee in the Mouth in 2006 and now Wrath, I've tried to trace how step by step this new permission to display anger worked its way into the broader culture. So he says, I won't try to retell that story here, but one important observation is that our culture became conspicuously angry well before anger took over our politics. And the paradoxical reason for that is politics is always angry. And because it's always ready to descend into unbridled nastiness, we've developed codes and formal courtesies to restrain over-the-top anger in political situations. Now, they've sometimes failed, of course but they continued to maintain some degree of order long after we had collectively let loose in vituperative aggression in music, movies, sports, the arts, and domestic life. 
But then came the George W. Bush years, which in which outright political rage on the left, combined with the accelerant of social media, demolished all of the old political protocols. The hate fest had begun. Now, this is plainly an entirely different story from the one Osnos offers. He says, I don't mean to say that 9-11 isn't a reasonable point to start an account of what led us to today's fraught situation. But I think that it helps to put these events in the longer perspective. Once upon a time, Americans regarded self-restraint as a key social and personal virtue. By the, 16, by the 1960s, rather, self-expression was well on its way to usurping that older ethic. Out of this came what I call new anger. In other words, anger that's proud of itself and is performed with the expectation of approval or even applause. New anger is show-off anger. It makes the performer feel powerful and real. In fact, he says Donald Trump was and is a master of this kind of performance, which today is a kind of cultural capital. Now, Peter Wood says, look, I write from a somewhat complicated position in that I regard new anger as corrosive to our social and cultural life. But, he says, I also regard Trump as having played an immensely valuable role in pushing back against the cultural and social catastrophe of progressive domination. No one else could have done it. And by doing it, he clarified for millions of Americans exactly what we face. New anger was also an emotional valence better suited to protest movements and those who reject traditional values. So it made sense that an angry left crystallized as a mass phenomenon well before an angry right came along. And he says, I say this perfectly aware that Rush Limbaugh and his imitators had begun to conjure conservative anger in the 1980s and the angry white man was routinely denounced during the Bill Clinton years. These were passing comets compared to the blast furnace of left-wing denunciation that belched forth following the 2000 election. But somehow Osnos missed every bit of this in his account of the making of America's fury. He misses as well the result of the 2020 election and the riot at the Capitol on January 6th are not about a sense of a sense uh, among a great many ordinary Americans that they'd been caught up in a Trumpian delusion and misled. They don't believe that the old values of self-government, moral commitment, including the rule of law, the force of truth and the right to pursue a better life were mere mythology and that Trump's character flaws, including his anger and his capacity to anger others, ought to send us off to a period of humble repentance and a renewed submission to the rule of our betters. Rather, we see a highly questionable election manipulated by those who played on the fear of COVID to allow for highly irregular forms of voting. We see a disorderly but unarmed demonstration in the Capitol, wildly labeled as an insurrection. We see the instruments of state power, such as the FBI and the Justice Department, deployed to advance spurious uses of law. We see the rampant politicization of, of the military and deliberate disregard for the nation's borders. We see gross mismanagement of the economy. We see Americans left behind in the shambolic evacuation from Afghanistan. And we see continued efforts by the federal government to provoke fear and hysteria on COVID, climate change, and race, all to the end of further destruction of our civil liberties and self-government. I don't think he's wrong here. Peter Wood says, if one wants to truly understand the making of America's fury, it would be a good idea to take those matters seriously rather than to treat them as some kind of psychosis. 
Whether it might, whether my own account of how America became enraged will stand the test of time, he says, well, I can't say. But at least I can say that Osnos's Wildland provides no insight at all into what's really happening among those of us who see ourselves as opposing a tide of illegitimate cultural authority backed by unfounded state power. Kind of an interesting take there. Now, for what it's worth, if, you, if anger is one of the driving factors in your life, or if it's one of the dynamics that moves you through the day, let me put this another way. If you have to set aside time every day just to seethe and to feel anger and remind yourself of who or what you're against, there is a better way. And that anger may feel justified. I mean, there's, there, look, I, I see things that frustrate me to the core. And yeah, it does conjure up a sense of anger that someone could do this. Not just to my beloved country, but to, to, uh, to my rights and to, to my prerogative to live according to my conscience. I think about the future that my kids are facing and my grandkids are facing because of the people who feel like it's, it's my prerogative to dominate and to tell everybody this is how they should, should be. You know, as a free man, that kind of stuff isn't something that's, that's easy to just shrug off and say, yeah, well, you know, to each his own. Because these people are talking about weaponizing, you know, and using government force to bring people into compliance. By the way, there's been a lot of great uh, object lessons in this as, as we've watched the COVID pandemic response play out. Look, anger's part of being human. Okay, it's not like it's not like you can just switch it off like a light switch. Okay, you know, it's it's done. I'm I'm not going to be angry now. But I think self-restraint is essential. And again, I'm going to come back to the idea that it's far more important that you be dead set certain about who you are and what you stand for more so than simply what makes you angry. My listeners have heard me say for some time now, if you uh, you tell me what makes you angry, and I'll have about a 90% probability of being able to tell you where you get your news. Because that's how predictable we become. And news feeds our anger many times, depending on the sources that you access. It's time to lift ourselves a little bit higher, to elevate our minds and elevate the discussion. And we can do this. You just have to want to. This is The Brian Hyde Show.